Welcome to Be The Light Podcast with C.B. Barflow, lead pastor of Denver Beacon. I am your host, Pastor Ty Morris. Our desire is to lead the lost, the broken, and the hopelessness of our communities, to be light bearers in our city set on a hill. Now tune in for our sermon series. With me to our lessons today, we're reading from the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament in the book of Isaiah from chapter 9. We're, we're not in a new series. This is just my opportunity, my blessed chance to share the gospel message with you during this Christmas month. Next week, we're doing our Christmas play, and, and I'm not preaching. I'm just participating. I just, I'm, I'm in the cast. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lamp, and I'm excited about that role. But today, I get to teach from you from the Word of God. And so today, we're in Isaiah chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 2 through 7 for you. Isaiah is one of the major prophets. Go to Psalms and Proverbs and go to your right. You'll get there pretty quickly. Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 2 through 7. If you have it, say yeah. If you're looking, say, hold up, wait a minute. Here we are. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. It reads like this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The title of our message today, if you're taking notes, is Here Comes the Son. Here Comes the Son. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. I thank you for this word back through the decades, generations, and eons, through the eagle-eyed voice of the prophet Isaiah to, to the people of Judah and Israel and on to today. We thank you, God, for this word, and we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to receive it today. Amen. I was in eighth grade when um, I was walking home from school, and my oldest friend, Fred Rosa, uh, he and I became friends in second grade. I was the new kid in school. I had a, uh, arrived at uh, Cole Elementary in Broomfield, Colorado in second grade as about a 48-pound uh, goofball. And um, I sat down on the second grade carpet where our teacher played the harpsichord and sang songs to us. And, and in that class on my first day, a little boy named Fred Rosa leaned over to me and he said, you can be my friend if you want to. And he's been my best friend ever since. He was the best man at my wedding, and, and every chance I get to talk to him, I do. I don't know if you have friends like that that just hold a special place in your heart. In eighth grade, I was walking home from school, and Fred 
Fred and I have taken divergent paths. He, he had uh, more lackadaisical parents than I had. And in eighth grade, he was already driving his parents' Chevy Celebrity to and from school, which now I realize was highly illegal. But at the time, I thought was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And walking home from eighth grade, Fred rolled up next to me on the road with the window down and the left hand at the top of the steering wheel. Tell me if you can see the picture. With the seat leaned back in his arm over the passenger side and he said, he said, Seavers. That's what he called me. I said, hey man. He said, you want to ride home? I was like, you know I want to ride home, dude. And I jumped in that car and he was listening to music as he always did. His father, who passed away when we were in college, was a, a lover of music, a multi-instrumentalist. And, and, and because of his influences on Fred's life, Fred had this uncanny understanding of music far beyond our years. You see, I was just a little white boy that pretended to be black. I sang gospel music and I, pretend, I thought I was in a boy band. All I really knew was Jodeci and Boys to Men. Come on, somebody. And I got in the car that day, and Fred was listening to the Beatles. And I was in eighth grade, and it was really the first time I'd ever been exposed to the Beatles. And I got in, and he said, you heard this song? And he turned it up. Do, 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 do. Here comes the sun. Do you know the song? Here comes the sun. And I said, do, 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 do. Now, here's the deal. Because I only listened to R&B, I did not like that song. The first time you listen to the Beatles as a young person, it's not always as cool as you pretend it is. But because he was my friend and he was cooler than me, uh, he said, what do you think? And I said, this is good stuff, brother. I love this. Who is this? And he said, the Beatles. Never heard of them. To this day, I love the Beatles. I went and started listening to every song in their catalog. My mother didn't grow up in the Beatles era. She thought they were a little bit too poppy for her. She was more of a Led Zeppelin kind of gal. But I started to listen to the Beatles, and I started to fall in love with the Beatles. And I'm not sure if I love the Beatles for their music or love the Beatles because it reminds, reminds me of the deep affection I have for my dear friend in a moment like that day. But Here Comes the Sun stands as one of those songs in the catalog of the Beatles that I just love. Do you have one of those songs? It's not a church song. It's just a song that you just dig, right? And, and every time that song comes on, I love it. Now, as I've grown and matured in my faith, I see almost everything in my world through a Christological viewpoint. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean, I, I'm starting as I grow in the things of the Lord and, and, and starting to understand more about my God and deepen my faith and lean into my religion. I'm starting to see things through the lens through which God might see them. For example, I, my son, my oldest son, his name is Cal-El. It, it's the Aramaic word for prophet of God. It also happens to be the first name of Superman. Amen. And if you don't know anything about Superman, Superman was originally, I'm getting somewhere, don't worry, trust me. <laughs> Superman was originally written as the story of Jesus Christ in comic book form. If you've seen the movie Man of Steel, when Jor-El sends Kal-El to the earth, he goes to earth with his hand. I'm teaching already today. And so every time I see something in popular culture, I'm always seeing it how God might see it as either for the kingdom against. And now I recognize that John Lennon at one point even said that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus. But if you don't know the backstory, Paul put him right in his proper place after that. And if you do know the backstory, when Paul wrote, here comes the sun, 
he wrote the song, Here Comes the Sun, about Jesus. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. And I said, it's all right. Little darling, it's been a long, cold, lonely winter. But here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. All right. Y'all with me? Everybody just got to become a Beatles fan in Jesus' name. Tell me if it doesn't sound like this. Little darling, it's been a long, cold, lonely winter. It says right here in, in Isaiah 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. Do you all see where I'm going here today? My teaching today is not about the Beatles. There's nothing sacred or holy about the Beatles. I just liked them and wanted to share that story with you. My teaching today is that throughout the epics of time, generation after generation, God has and always will be revealing and hinting and foreshadowing and demonstrating his great redemptive plan to the world, which is the Son, Jesus Christ. And he'll use a prophet in the days of old or a simple band like the Beatles to do it because he's trying to remind you that light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. Y'all with me? So we're going to walk through this prophecy from the prophet Isaiah to get a clearer picture of who Jesus is, why he was given and what he came to do. So that as you walk through the next several days of the final run of the Christmas spirit, you remember why we celebrate Christmas. Amen? I want you to see this. The prophet Isaiah, he began his ministry. And if you don't know, prophet Isaiah is one of the larger books in the Old Testament. He's one of the, 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 the major prophets. And, and Isaiah was responsible for this vision of Christ along with so many other teachings to the people of Israel. He did his ministry in the 8th century during the reign of multiple kings in Judah and Israel. In fact, he received his calling during the 8th century under the reign of Uzziah. In fact, he talks about it right here in chapter 6, it reads like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. That's the Father, Yahweh. And I saw him seated on a throne, and he was high and lifted up. Isaiah says, I saw this with my own eyes. This is not a vision or a dream. Something happened in the very last year of Uzziah's reign, right before his son was about to take over the reign of Judah, right before his son was about to decay the leadership in Judah. At a time of great transition and uncertainty, for some reason, the great God of the world of angel armors chose me to see him. And this is what I saw. He said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Though the kings and kingdoms of this world began to crumble, I saw a God who sat on a throne that did not crumble. He says, the train of his robe, it filled the temple. And I need you to see this picture. The picture is, is as if the father sat on the throne, but the train of his robe flowed off the steps of the throne, down the back wall, up the side, and all the way around the corners. The entire temple was filled with the powerful covering of God because lest he be fully covered, all of his glory would show in such great magnitude and power that anything that was not eternal but temporal or fleeting would be destroyed in an instant. The temple was covered with his robe so as to protect us because he's so good, so powerful, and so mighty. And I, Isaiah says, and I, 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 I saw him. 
train of his robe fill of the whole temple. He goes on and he says, above him stood the seraphim. Each of them had six wings, two to cover their eyes, so they wouldn't go blind from the glory of God's face. Two to cover their feet, so that they wouldn't desecrate the throne of the very atmosphere of his and two to fly to keep them aloft in a perpetual state of worship, flying around the throne. And for eons and decades, they called out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. This is Isaiah. The first prophet to get a clear picture of the Father in his majesty and in his power. Which is why this prophet is the perfect prophet to speak of the coming of the Son. You need to understand that God never does anything on accident. It wasn't like the prophecy of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, was just tossed roughshod to whoever might pick it up. No, God chose Isaiah and he says, before you tell the world about my son, you must first see me. And so when we read in chapter 9, and Isaiah begins this prophecy, we must hear it in the same fashion that the first audience would have heard this from Isaiah. They would have gathered around in rapt attention because he was the prophet who served both Judah and the northern territories of Israel with warning, with correction, but prophecy and revelation that changed everything. So when he said, behold, I saw the father, they paid attention. And when he said, I think there's also a son there was a hush. It's the same sense of reverence we must all share for the word of God. Please don't for a moment think that when you come to Beacon, I'm reading from an optional text. Please don't think that when you hear the word of God go forth, you can take it or leave it. We must receive the word of God with a rapt attention to understand that the word of God is, is eternal. It never returns void. It holds all power. And what God says goes. Y'all with me? Amen. And so Isaiah begins to speak about the sun to come. Now, here's what I want you to see. Isaiah is talking to and about the northern territories of Israel, both Naphtali and Zebulun. In the beginning of this chapter, he mentions that they're under oppression. The reason they're under oppression is because they had been living in great disobedience and they'd become, at this point of this writing, in the very beginning, 
stages of becoming a vassal state to the kingdom of Assyria. A vassal state was a, was a state that had been overrun by a more powerful government or empire, and they were then allowed to live under certain conditions, that they complied with the laws of the land, that they gave a certain portion of their taxes, that they paid honor where honor was due to the kingdom of the oppressor, and that they also worshipped the gods of the oppressor. A vassal state is an absolutely devastating thing to happen to any country, let alone God's chosen people. And so when Isaiah writes to the people, he's writing to that sense of desperation. He's saying, you, though you be God's people, are living as though you're not God's people, and you're stuck in a world that hates your God and makes you glorify everything else that is in God. Tell me if that doesn't sound familiar to you. This is why we get to study the eternal word of God is because it was true then and it is also true now. And in that moment of desperation with the reverence for the word of God that Isaiah is about to prophesy, he begins to speak this language about the coming promise of God's redemptive plan. And here's what he says. He says, I got good news for you. You guys are in trouble right now. Amen. It ain't looking good. It's pretty dark. But there's light in the darkness. He says in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness, notice that he's using the past tense to a people in a current tense state. Come on, somebody. I wish I could get that into your spirit today. God is speaking to your current situation as though your current situation, bad as it is, is already over. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt, past tense, in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Verse 3, you, talking to God, have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. Here is what he's saying to any one of you who is stuck in darkness. To any one of you who feels trapped in sin. To those of you who have succumbed to the circumstances and the ill feelings and wills of others. Not due to your own volition, but because we live in a fallen world and you've been hurt and victimized and abused and trapped and stuck. And also to those of you who done did it to yourself. You got yourself in this message, your own bad choices over and over again. You keep blaming everybody else, but you know at the end of the day when you look in the mirror, it's your fault. Isaiah writes to both. He says both to the stuck and both to the ones digging their own hole. You're in darkness, but guess what? God loves to shine light into the darkness. I was a, was a drug addict for a lot of years. You've heard me talk about it probably too many times crystal meth addict for the last part of my addiction and uh, I used to live in this house in Greeley. I was a musician at the time full-time. I was making music and recording and performing and, um, and uh, as happens with addiction, slowly your normal friends drift away and all of your friends become just drug friends. And so I had a band and I had uh, people who were made music with me, and they'd be over at the house, and we'd be making music. But as my addiction progressed, the, the people who were productive began to show up less and less, and the, the people who were unproductive began to show up more and more. And I remember being in my basement studio, and outfitted this entire room with soundproofing and a booth and the whole, everything you do. And, um, and I was getting high all night long. 
room full of drug addicts. <laughs> but I'd said yes to Jesus when I was seven. And I'd been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and evidence of speaking in tongues when I was 18. I mean, I was a full-on holy roller before I got attacked by the enemy. Amen. I loved Jesus with my whole heart, and I yearned for my return to his throne. I mourned my distance, but I was stuck because I got myself into the trouble. And, 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 I, and I tell this story all the time, and it baffles people, baffles me today, but I would sit in that drug den season of my life, passing a pipe, telling people how good our God was and how no matter what, I knew he would rescue me. I mean, I would, I would then just paint the picture. I would just hit the meth pipe. No, nah, man, God's going to get me out of this. His mercy endures forever. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for my God is for me. He works all things together for the good of those who love him or called according to his purpose. And I would just begin to preach to drug dealers and users. And a lot of them would be like, bro, I'm not enjoying this high. Can you please... And I don't know what it was except for the fact that once the light of God had entered into my heart, no matter how dark my life got, there was this thing in me that knew that no matter what, I'm going to find my way out. And that's what I'm wishing on there. That's what I'm praying for. That's why we preach in this church. We preach so that when you're stuck, you can go, it may not look good. But all I need is a little bit of a spark. This is the teaching of the gospel in a nutshell, just so that you know. It's also the very crux of our ministry as a church. The motto of our church is we are the beacons built with broken pieces, shining the light of Jesus. The idea is that we gather all of the broken shards and broken pieces of our life. We bring them all together. We build them all up. And somehow God turns it into this beautiful, glorious light that tells other people about Jesus. The reason that we do this is so that you, when you're stuck and you feel like it's too broken and it's too dark, you can understand when when John says in chapter 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. You'll believe it in the core of your being. Tell me if you've ever been in a dark room and then someone lights a match. Whew, hallelujah. Tell me if you ever do this. Do you have a basement in your house and you turn the lights off in your basement? And then you, even though you're a grown adult, have to go up the stairs from that dark basement? Am I talking to anybody? I mean, a 44-year-old father of two, leader of a church, I do not turn off the basement light before I'm up at the top. I just leave that sucker on. I back up the stairs. And then I turn that light off and I run. Why? Because when light shines in the darkness, then I know the darkness can't overcome it. But I'm still a little bit afraid of the dark, so I need the light. Amen. Here's what I'm trying to tell you today. It's never too dark for God to shine into your life. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've done. And neither does Jesus. He's not a respecter of persons. There's no one in here that he's like, nope, that one's too far gone. That ain't the gospel. The gospel says, I came that you might have life, even in death, even in death. So he says to the people, those who dwelt in darkness... Those who stay in a deep darkness, on them a light has shined. And then he makes this promise. He says, now, the Lord himself will multiply the nation and he will increase its joy. And we will rejoice before God with the joy at the harvest <laughs> and the joy when we divide the spoil. 
man, this is so good. I wish you could get it in your spirit. You'd run with it. Isaiah isn't just saying God's willing to show up in your mess, commiserate with you, and do what most people in your mess do, ask you like, so what would you do? Why are you stuck? No, Isaiah says, when the sun shines into the darkness, he eliminates the darkness, and it becomes a season of light, a season of harvest, and a season of spoil. These are terms we don't totally understand now because we live in Denver in 2023. But the language he's using is this. When the sun comes into your mess, you will be full. Or, can I put it like this? Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. That's what he's saying. It's about to be better than you think if you'll just let the light shine into your darkness. He said, it's going to be a season of harvest. Better yet, he said, it's going to be the same kind of joy that you experience when you split the spoil. You said, what's the spoil? Like bad fruit? No. He's talking about seasons of war. When conquering armies walk into enemy territory, eliminate the threat, and then get all of the benefits of what the enemy took and earned on his own. What Jesus is saying is when I shine light into your season, not only will I restore you, I'll bless you, and I'll take back everything the enemy stole from you. You said, what if he didn't steal it? We're taking it anyway. That's what Jesus does. He says, I walked into the enemy's camp and I took back what he stole from me. I took back what he stole from you and you and you. Jesus' plan is that you would have life and have it abundant. He's so good. I'm preaching. This is why she's married to me. She stands up every time. I'm doing practice at home. She's like, preach, baby. But if you know, like we know, if you live like we live, if you trust like he wants you to trust, you'd understand that even when it's the darkest, harvest is on the way. Oh, that's why I never want you to be worried about bad times. Every time you meet with me, I, I get a blessed opportunity on Mondays to meet with members from our church. They set meetings with me. And invariably, we meet in the middle of a dark season. And ask any one of them in their darkest season, I'd say, you can ask them, what do you and Pastor CB talk about? And they'll tell you, well, I went in and told him how bad it was, and he told me how great that was. People sit down and they're like, it's all falling apart. And I'm like, hooray! What? No. No, I mean, I don't, I don't want you to suffer but boy, when light starts shining in your darkness. Oh, when you come to the end of yourself, when you recognize that left to your own devices and now at the end of your own road, you've given up on this whole plan A that is you, 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 and now you're free to go shine your light. It's you, you, you. Well, that's harvest and spoil and joy and rejoicing. That's the gospel in Jesus' name. And then he doesn't stop. Oh, the gospel's so good. He says, I'll shine into the darkness. I'll bring joy and harvest and joy and harvest and joy and harvest. And you say, well, what about all my trauma? What about all this pain I've been? I mean, it's great to hear that I have a future, but for some of us, I can't even get out of my own past. Verse 4, the prophet says, for the yoke of his, that's you, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor 
have been broken as if on the day of Midian, and every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult, and every garment rolled in the blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, I don't, we'll probably never get through this message because it's all so good. Isaiah is talking to Israel, clearly. And so I never want to teach you wrong exegesis that says you're in every text. Can we just do this for a second? Not every text is written to you. Amen? In fact, no text in the Bible is written to you. It's written to an original audience. But every text in the Bible is written for you. Oh, you might miss it, okay? It's not written to you. You're not the only audience. The only audience was the original audience, but it was written so that you could read the letters and so that you could reap the benefit of the relationship between God because even though the original letter is written to a certain people, the writer of the letter is the lover of all people. Y'all with me? So here, when he talks about the rod and the staff, and the yoke, it is specifically about the suffering that Israel has experienced at the hand of their enemies. He uses the example of Midian. Under the impression of Midian during the time of the judges, Israel suffered greatly. And it was one lowly, silly little goose of a man named Gideon that God chose to change everything when they thought nothing would ever change. And he says, let me remind you of a time that it looked so bad that Israel thought they would die when the, the consequences of our own disobedience led us to such oppression and pain that we were like, nope, surely I'll never be saved. God's forgotten me, forsaken me, and he's all the way gone. And, and Isaiah says, you remember that salvation? It's just like that. He's going to show up because he always shows up. He's going to fix it because he always fixes it. He's going to heal your land and your heart and break the back of everyone that tries to break your back. You with me? He says he'll, he'll take the staff. That's the law. take the yoke that's our guilt he'll take the rod that's your oppression and persecution he says I'll reach right in to the areas where you've failed where you feel terrible when you think it's your own fault and even your own friends have turned their back and mocked you because your life has fallen to heck yeah I'll fix that too now, I don't know if I'm preaching to anybody in here, but it was great when he saved me. It was even better when he delivered me. But boy, when he cleaned up the mess of my wreckage, am I, am I preaching to somebody here? I mean, there's a few of us that like, we don't get to just get saved because no one believes when we're saved. Am I talking to you? Like, I found Jesus. And like, yeah, whatever, bro. Like, because you've said it before and then did the same dirty dog things you've always done. Some of us have lived so rotten and so messed up that it's not just about what God does in our heart. It's about what God does through us to clean up the mess in the hearts of other people and in healing ourselves. He says, I'm the God of forever. 
And I'll also fix your now. The people who lived in darkness, on them has shone a great light. He says Jesus is light in the darkness, but beyond that, he's also the light for the whole world. I want you to see verse 6 with me. God makes a clear understanding of who Jesus is. He says, for to us, a child is born. Let's just do this line by line. A child is born. The teaching here is that, that the one who will save will be brought into the world and born of flesh, innocent as a human. You see that? For unto us, a child, innocent human, will be born, will be brought forth through flesh. And then he says, to us, a son is given. Sounds like redundancy, but it's not. It's two sentences that mean two completely different things. For unto us a child will be born, a human will be brought forth in flesh, and in that human brought forth in flesh will be the son, heir, prince, gifted to us. He is both human and God. That's the teaching here. And he says, let let me understand, let me make it clear so you don't miss it. The light that's about to shine in the world, I am the light of the world, John 8, 12, will be brought into the world low. But just because he's brought into the world low and vulnerable, and remember we talked about this several weeks ago, in the ancient Near East rabbinic and Semitic culture, children of the least value, though he'll be brought low and without value, he is the son who is gifted by God and every good and perfect gift comes from the father. So he's brought low, but he ain't low. Y'all with me? He came in undercover, but believe me, he has all the power. Y'all with me? This is what he says. He says, he's given to you lowly, but oh, he ain't low. This is how he lifts on it. He says, for us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders. Now, I know some capable children, but I've never met a child who can carry the government of the world. I have watched the script's spelling bee, just as you have, and marveled that I didn't know any of those words, but none of those kids are capable of doing what this kid came to do. And the teaching is a juxtaposition. He is saying the same thing you've heard me preach over and over and over again, the same thing Jesus says, the Son of Man came to serve and not to be served. He came gentle and lowly, the last shall be first, the least among you. Y'all with me? And the prophet says, but just so we're all clear on exactly who he is, the B part of verse 6, he shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. He says, he will come as an infant. (laughs) We have a family staying with us this season. 
by God's great grace, we've been able to open our homes to two families, uh, refugees from Venezuela, and uh, they, they get their apartment on Monday. Come on, somebody. Yeah. And, uh, and they're wonderful, blessed, beautiful people. Uh, three boys, uh, Jesus seven and, and Snyder is nine. And, and then they got a little baby, Thiago. He's five months. And I don't know how much you like babies, but my babies are big. Amen. And I love me some babies. I don't know how you deal with someone who has a baby, but I'm sort of a gimme, 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 gimme. I love, there's something amazing in the eyes and in the spirit of an infant. Their skin be all smooth, their hair is all fuzzy. And then you, you just, you just, I just talk to them like an adult. I'm like, I can't wait till you go to college, Thiago. It's going to be so amazing. You're going to be a lawyer. And I love it. Why? Because there's no malice, no sin, no issue. It's like they're just perfect and simultaneously vulnerable. Remember the first time anybody ever handed you a baby and they said, watch, watch, watch the head. You knew in that moment you were suddenly, even though you might be a child at the time, charged with caring for this helpless baby. And the prophet says, he will come. And when he arrives, he will be innocent and vulnerable and helpless. But he won't be that for long. The way that the prophet describes who Jesus is should cause everyone in this room to reconcile ourselves to God. I want you to see this. He uses four distinct terms, and they're the four facets of the faces of Jesus. Could have teach this whole message just right here, but here's what they are. Wonderful counselor. The word wonderful means miraculous, and counselor is just like you might have a counselor at a therapist or an advice giver or counsel in a court of law. This is someone who is charged with giving you good and sound wisdom. He says he is the miraculous wisdom giver. He holds all knowledge in his hand. You said, hold up, I thought he was a baby. Yep, and he has all knowledge and all power and all wisdom. Wonderful counselor. But he's not just a teacher. Next line, he's the mighty God. God here, singular, L. The supreme being. He's coming as a baby, but he's the one God. And the word used to describe him in that facet of his being, supreme, pinnacle, primary, only God, is mighty. The connotation in the Hebrew language is that he's a fighter or, better yet, warrior God. He says, I'm sending you a baby, and he's a stone-cold killer of sin. You be like, that little baby? Yeah, that little baby right there. He's about to erase every sin and every shame and all the hurt and all the pain. That little baby right here is about to walk into hell and back and rescue every captive and set everyone free. He's going to heal disease and bring people out of addiction, break bondages and call the prisoners home. That little baby right there is going to stand up as the lamb and the lion, the God of angel armies. He was and is and always will be. He's everlasting to everlasting. That little baby, warrior king, my king, my God. 
But then he says a term here that some people kind of struggle with because we, we, we are believers in the gospel and a clear understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. We believe that Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, y'all with me, are three distinct persons. Don't get it twisted. They're three distinct persons. Persons, three individuals. Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not Jesus. But they are all God. Y'all with me? They are not one being with multiple facets or manifestations. Three beings. And yet, the prophet says, he is everlasting Father. Okay, what do we do with this? I mean, I thought he was the Son. A Son is given, who is also the Father. Travis is always preaching in my ear. If you don't know, Travis runs our slides. He knows the Bible better than everybody. And I think I have revelation, and he's saying it to me before I'm preaching it. You better get out here and preach. The word everlasting father, everlasting means without end. And father in Hebrew, av, means originator or source. He is the source of all things who will never end. That little baby, that little baby. For in him and through him and by him and to him were all things made. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. Simply stated, he's the steward. He is the carrier and he is the maker of calm in your storm. He says, a son is coming, and he will have all wisdom and all power. He is the beginning and the end, and from start to finish, he brings peace. That's my king. That's who he is. And in verse 7, the prophet says, and this is why that matters. He says, of the increase of his government and of that peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. This is not just that he's light in the darkness and not just that he's light of the world. This is the fact that he is light both now and forever and ever. Amen. Here's what he says. He comes to rule. Notice. Of the increase of his government that puts him in right position as the king and ruler. Hear me, we need this king. You and I were made to serve the king. And he was made to rule us. It is a perfect relationship between us and him. Ask anybody that's finally gone to the end of their rope who submitted their life to the king and found that the burden of being their own God was finally lifted. It says he came to rule and he came to do it in peace, which is a far cry from the life that the people in the original audience would have known. See, everything that they knew up until that time was kingdom and kingdoms. The way you took everything was by force. Nothing was done in peace. Peace was a term used to manipulate people into thinking that they were living well when they were living in subjection. Peace was never used. It wasn't effective. The only thing that worked was killing. 
And, and he says, when he comes, he will rule righteously and rightfully. He will be the king over all kingdoms. And he will do it in a way none of us have ever seen it. He will do it through peace, through patience, through kindness, and through calm. Now, I don't know what the war is like in your heart. I don't know what the fight is like in your mind. But if it was like mine, the very idea that he would calm the winds and waves of my own tumult, well, that's a, a king I'd be willing to follow anywhere. He says he came to rule. He came to do it in peace. And then of the increase, <laughs> the increase of that peaceful ruling, meaning it, it's good when he arrives, but it'll be better tomorrow. And the day after that will be even better than that. You see, I meet people all the time who, who come to this church or other churches. And I don't know if you've ever watched me worship. But boy, when, when we really get to worshiping, Chanel and I, we might scare you. I won't lie to you. It's interesting. She, when, when Chanel really worships, she weeps. No, that's not the right term. She sobs. Uncontrollably sobs at the sweetness of the spirit in which she's enveloped. And when I worship, I jump, which is probably no surprise. And I shout. And I throw my fist up. And I spin around in circles. And I have to remember that I have to preach in 10 minutes, so stop losing your voice. And I have people that come to this church, and they're like, you guys are crazy. And I'm like, yeah, man, I know it looks crazy, but if you, if you, if you knew like we knew, or if you'd been through what we'd been through, you, you, you wouldn't really mind. Let me put it this way. If you've ever been really crazy, you no longer worry about looking crazy. Y'all with me? I don't really care what you think because I've been in the dumps. I've been actually crazy. I've been actually ready to die. I've been actually like, you can take it all. I'm done. Nothing works. Nothing works. Nothing works. And when I met the God who made things work, I'm willing to lose it all. And if you don't like it, you better get with it. Praise and worship looks like this. True worship. And they say, I don't know if I could do it like that. Well, if you go to heaven... It's going to be weird if you're the only one back in the back row of the kingdom and we're all freaking out because he's right there and you're like, I fair to guess you won't be like that. I bet you money that when you walk through the gates, and all of your sin, shame, worry, and fear have melted off of your life. And you get a glimpse around Peter. He's checking the book. You're like, move, man. It's in there. But you got to check. Okay. Peter's pun up. There. Thank you. No, seriously. Am I really in there? When you, I'm telling you. I bet you money when you see him. There won't be any decorum left on you. I bet you even the stiffest upper lip in this room will be racing to the throne of grace. 
I bet you everyone in here that came in in your Sunday best would come to a sliding stop on the streets of gold at his feet and wash those feet with your tears. I bet you if you really got a chance to touch him, nothing else would matter. Amen? Why? Because he's worth it. Because he's good. Because he's perfect. Amen? And on, on his government and his peace, it will only get better and better and better. And you said, I don't know if I can worship like that in heaven forever? Yeah, forever. For how long is forever? Well, it says a thousand years. You mean to tell me we're going to be sweating and jumping and shouting for a thousand years? Yep, and on the last day, you're going to be asking for a thousand more. You'd be like, if yesterday was that good, what you got tomorrow, Jesus? Let's hang out some more. I love you. You're great. You're going to look so silly. It's going to be so wonderful. Why? Because he keeps getting better and better and better and better and better. Now, I'm out of time, but I'm not out of message, so let's leave it like this. I painted a picture for you what the light of the world might be, what he will be like when he comes in his glory, what he came to do in this world. And if you're here and you're not yet in that light, if your life is still marked by the tumult of your heart and the pain of your sin, by the shame of the world in which you lived or the past and the transgressions you left behind, if you're not currently living in a season where it's just getting better and better and better if your life is not marked by peace today, tomorrow, and forevermore. I want to ask you, no, I want to challenge you to receive the light that is shining into the darkness. You've heard people say, have you made a decision for Jesus? I'm going to tell you right now, he's already made a decision about you. All you need to do is receive it. In the same way you walk into a dark room, all you need to do is see the light. You just need to receive his light. So with every head bowed and every eyes closed, I'm going to pray a simple prayer that you can pray today. I'm going to ask everybody to respect this moment. This is a sacred and holy moment where people might become citizens of heaven forever and ever. Amen. So with every head bowed and every eye closed. If you're here today. And you said, I want that light. I need out of the darkness of my current circumstances. I'm trapped by my decisions and stuck in my situation. If that's you, I want you to just slip up your hand right where you are. No one is looking. I see you. I see you. I see you. See you. See you. I see you. I see you. I see you. Hallelujah. I see you. You can put your hands down. We're going to pray this prayer together. This prayer is not the end of your salvation, but the beginning of you walking into the glorious light that he shines. And I'm going to ask all of us as one body to pray it together. Would you repeat after me? Father God, I'm a sinner in need of saving, stuck in the darkness, and I need your light. Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. You take away my sin. You take away my shame. I give my life to you. Come live in my heart. Make me new. In Jesus' name, amen.
Would you stand to your feet all over the building? Let's worship in this moment of celebration right now. For a glorious light has shined in the darkness today. Amen. Thanks for joining Be The Light Podcast with lead pastor C.B. Barthlow. Visit our website at denverbeacon.org. To download our Beacon app, text Beacon to 97000. Once again, text Beacon to 97000. Whatever you do, please remember to be the light. Let's go! Let's go!